welcome to New Cities Sermon Podcast. Join us as we root deep in God's Word, expecting to be encouraged, challenged, and formed to be more like Jesus together. Let's get into the scriptures now. Good. You know, as we conclude our series tonight on uh, that they may be one, we've talked about relationships, marriage, sex, and worship, and some of the sermons have been encouraging for us, and some of them have been challenging for us. Have you been challenged during this series? Um, Yes, we have been challenged. There are times when God doesn't hold back. But tonight's an interesting topic that we're going to be looking at as we wind down this particular series, because we're going to be talking about the church at Corinth, one of the worst churches in the New Testament. People often say, I I think we should get back and the church should just be like it was in the early church. Well, you have to be careful which church you pick because this one was a pretty awful one. In fact, if we do a little background on the church at Corinth, um, the, the church at Corinth didn't look very much like Christ. There was all sorts of divisions in the church. Some people in the church said, I'm going to follow this pastor. I'm going to follow that pastor. They also were incredibly rude to Paul. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But we're looking at the very end of the second letter uh, to the Corinthians, which is actually a a benediction. You might hear at the end of our service, sometimes Chris will say, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's a blessing that we give. It's God's blessing to us. And we often say that at the end of the service. We're actually going to be looking at the text that has that. So when I read that particular text, don't think it's the end of the service. The sermon's just beginning when I do that, all right? So we're going to be looking at that. We're actually going to be in the English Standard Version today. Normally, we use the Christian Standard Bible, but we're going to be in the ESV today. Just I like the way it's translated a little bit better, and I think it's more understandable for us. And we're going to be looking at gospel redefined relationships from 2 Corinthians 13 verses 11 through 14. Let me pray for us and then we'll read God's word. Lord, we pray that you would come and mold our hearts and mold our thoughts and mold our actions. We want to know in a deeper way that we are loved by you and we want to radically love others like you love us. And so we pray that as we end our series and as we look at this text tonight, that you would change the way we think about relating to others that you would redefine relationships according to the gospel. And all God's people said, amen. All right, let me read 2 Corinthians 13, verses 11 through 14. Paul writes, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. And then here it is. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The word of God. A couple weeks ago, my brother-in-law, who's a high school football coach in St. Augustine, actually he coaches the St. Augustine High Yellow Jackets, where football is everything in that town, uh, they traveled to Brunswick, Georgia, 
And it was a Florida-Georgia rivalry between the, 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 the high school there in Brunswick. And the Brunswick team had not lost on their home field in something like 23 different games. They had a 23-game winning streak at home. And my brother-in-law, who's the head coach of St. Augustine, came into their stadium and they beat them on their own turf. And we were so excited for him because it was a big deal and they're having a great season at St. Augustine High and their football team. But my sister said something funny really happened, uh, funny happened right after the game. As soon as the game was over, all the St. Augustine fans took their cameras out to take a picture of the scoreboard because the scoreboard said St. Augustine wins, Brunswick, Georgia loses. But immediately they turned the scoreboard off so that no one could get a picture because they were upset that their winning streak was over, that my brother-in-law's team had come in and stomped on me, you know? And in fact, the newspaper article said, a streak snapped, Brunswick's 23-game regular season win streak ends against St. Augustine, and there's the final score, uh, the Jackets 45, the Pirates 35. But I just thought it was interesting, you know, like it kind of kind of maybe like even a poor sport, like let's turn the scoreboard off right away so we can we just forget that we that we lost. Um, but sports works that way, right? Sports is based on scores. We're all rejoicing because the Dolphins won 70 to 20, if you didn't know. Yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting. And, and that score tends to define the relationship between two teams, right? One wins and one loses. There's winners and there's losers in sports. But one of the problems that we have in relationships is that we often look at relationships like there's a score, like someone has more points on the board than the other person, like when someone fails, they lose points, or when someone hurts us, we gain points, or when there's unmet expectations, we begin to keep score. We look at people's words and their actions, and then we put it up on this mental scoreboard, and that mental scoreboard tends to define the relationship and the way that we treat one another. If we feel like your score is pretty bad, then we won't treat you as good. See, the score in the relationship tends to define the relationship. Now, that's how sports works, but often that's how we work as human beings. If you failed me, I'm not going to forget. If you hurt me, I'm going to keep a reminder of that right there. And so that score that we have in the relationship dictates how we act and feel and think about other people. It, it, it filters in what we think they deserve or what the status is or who is the winner and who is the loser. But I think all of us recognize that's just kind of petty, right? I think all of us recognize we want to be different kind of people than that. We want to be in relationships, whether that's friendships or, or church members or our, our, our spouses or our girlfriends or our boyfriends. We want to be different kind of people who don't operate off that kind of scoreboard, right? We want to be the kind of people who actually turn the scoreboard off for the other person when it's embarrassing for them. We, we don't want to tear down. We want to assume the best. We don't want to criticize all the time. We want to affirm what's good in other people. We don't want to move away from people when they let us down. Rather, we want to lean into them even though they haven't met our expectations. And even when it comes to blatant sin, 
when people sin against us, I, I think that there's something in us that doesn't want to magnify their sin, but rather wants to admit that we're sinners too and move towards them in love. We want to rise above the score. We don't want to respond with who's won and who's lost because who wins and who loses in relationships, that's not love. And as the people of God, we're called to love. We're not called to keep a record of wrong. We're not called to keep score in relationships. Now, if there's anyone who could have kept score in a relationships, in relationship, it's the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul had started the church in Corinth, but they had failed him dramatically. They told Paul, look, we heard you're this great apostle. We heard you started our church, but guess what? We're not very impressed with you at all. Not only that, the church in Corinth told Paul, we don't think we really need you. In fact, they lied about Paul and hurt his reputation. They insulted him to each other, even though he was the one who started that church and they had made it the worst church in the New Testament. But in spite of all that failure, Paul didn't operate from a way of keeping score. Rather, Paul leaned into this failing church with love. See, for the Christian, there's a whole different way of thinking about relationships. It's not based on what you do for me. Rather, it's based on what Christ has done for us. And when we understand what Jesus has done for us by dying on the cross for my sin and for your sin, by rising from the dead to give me new life and you new life, by promising that the Spirit will be with me forever and you forever, that good news, that gospel redefines the relationship. And it does it in three ways. The gospel redefines a relationship for us against keeping score because it creates an unusual bond between people. Secondly, it generates counter-cultural impulses. And then third, it secures us to a relational God. First of all, it creates an unusual relational bond. In verse 12, Paul says this to the Corinthian church, greet one another with a holy kiss and everyone gets uncomfortable. What does that mean? In fact, theologians have wrote, written about that uh, for centuries. What, what does it mean? Well, here's what I think it means. Uh, to give someone a kiss in that culture was a sign of affection and a commitment that was only reserved for family. And so what Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church to do is to treat each other as family. Though some are rich, though some are poor, though some are slave, though some are free, Though some come from one group and some come from another, they are equals. And they're called to treat each other with family affection. Notice that weird words that he puts together. He says, holy and kiss. Holy, that there's this gospel reality in this sign of physical affection. And this kiss, there's this embodied bond. I'm going to show you that I care about you. Dane Ortland says it's both sacred and earthy when Paul writes this phrase, a holy kiss. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, I think what Paul's getting at is something 
that was reserved specifically for family. And I think that's the connection for us, not that we have to go around giving each other kisses on the cheeks, but rather that we would see the point is really to treat each other as family. That the unusual relational bond we have is that in Christ, we are family together. Now, I think what that might look like in our culture would actually be inviting each other into our homes. Paul in that culture said, greet one another with a holy kiss. He might say to us, greet each other by welcoming others into your home. That's intimate, isn't it? To let someone come and see your imperfect place and your imperfect people and your imperfect family. But if they're family as well, then you're inviting them into who you are. And when we begin to treat each other as family, elitism goes out the window. Paul continues with this theme. Not only does he say to greet one another with a holy kiss, but he uses in verse 11 the term brother. Finally, brothers. Now, sisters, don't get angry. Paul's not leaving you out. He's addressing both men and women under the term brothers. In that culture, women were looked down on. And what Paul is saying, maybe in our culture, women are looked down upon. But in the Christian community, both men and women are part of the brotherhood. It's elevating women to say they are part of this. And see, Paul is emphasizing again that we have this unusual relational bond. That though we didn't come from the same home, though we didn't grow up in the same city, though we might not have anything in common, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. As a church, that means we need to function as a got-your-back church in a watch-your-back world. If your family to me and I'm family to you, your problems are my problems because we're brothers and sisters. We have a relational bond, which is why Paul in verse 13 says, all the saints greet you. Now, that's surprising to me because I think I would have said, all the saints know you're the worst church in the New Testament. But Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't define them by their failures. He doesn't keep score. Rather, he remembers that their family and the other churches send their greeting as family, even though they're completely failing. The gospel creates an unusual relational bond where people who might not have nothing in common, anything in common, become family together. And then Paul tells them in verse 11, finally, brothers, finally, family, rejoice. Rejoice. Now, what I love about that is it's a command. He tells us, rejoice, express joy. And to us, that feels weird in our culture because we are so tied to what feels authentic. And so if I'm not feeling joy, I would be wrong to express joy. But what Paul's saying is that there's always a reservoir for us of God's love, of God's forgiveness, of God's joy that we can tap into. And even in the worst circumstances, we can find something to rejoice about. I want to give you something to rejoice about. This past week, Chevelle and I sat down with B. I don't think B is here tonight. Uh, and B 
on Tuesday or Wednesday, I can't remember the day, B said, I want to become a follower of Jesus. Here's what I love, though. I explained the gospel to B, that all of her sins are put on Jesus, and because of Jesus, all of God's love comes onto her, that her record is wiped completely clean. Now when she turns away from her sins, she becomes part of a new family, and she has much to rejoice about, and all of her sins are wiped clean forever. And you know what she said to me? That's crazy. But she got it, right? She gets it. It is crazy. And in her response, there's an element of joy. I can't believe God would do something like this for a sinner like me. That's crazy reminds us of the, of the eternal wealth of joy we have in Jesus, that none of you deserve what God has given us. All of us are responding, not to God keeping score, but rather to God cleansing the score, forgiving all our sins and making us family. And when you begin to realize that, the family takes on a new feel to it, a, a new culture, a counterculture. See, the, the gospel generates countercultural impulses in us, and I'll explain what that means. In, in our culture, we are so divided right now. If someone wrongs you, you have the right to drop the mic on them and walk away, but not so for the Christian because that's not what God has done with us. The gospel generates countercultural relational impulses. Here's what I mean. In verse 11b, Paul says this, Aim for restoration. When someone fails you, what do you aim for? Do you aim to let them know how badly they failed you? Do you aim to let them know what the score is? Do you aim to let them know that they should not mess with you again? Because of the gospel, we aim for restoration. See, that implies that you're going to get let down. It implies that relationships break down. If you're in a marriage, you have been let down by your spouse. If you know someone from the church, you have been sinned against at some point. If you know me, I have not met all your expectations. Aiming for restoration implies that we have to be ready for people to fall short of our expectations, for people to fall short of what's right. But... It reminds us that we're not here to keep score and build resentment, but rather the relational impulse because of the gospel is restoration. I remember when I was in seminary and I had to take Greek class. I had to learn to read and write in Greek. It was so hard. It was just so hard to learn how to read Greek so we could translate the New Testament. And at one point, my professor was this really gracious guy named Greg Perry. He's actually preached for us a couple years ago. And, and like, I was just convinced that Dr. Perry was out to get us. Like, he's just trying to make our life miserable because this stuff is so hard. And as soon as we get the work done from last week, he just pours it on. And so I started to cop an attitude in class. Yeah, I was in pastoral training school and I copped an attitude in, in the class and like was just scoffing. I cannot believe this. This is impossible. And then the Lord just convicted me and I was like, oh man, like, what am I doing? Like, <laughs> so I went to Dr. Perry. I met with him one night and I said, Dr. Perry, I'm just so sorry. Like, I've just had an attitude in your class and I'm really sorry. 
I've been a little disrespectful and I've been frustrated and, and I'm sorry that I've expressed that in class. And what I saw for him was such a great example of aiming for restoration. The first thing he said to me wasn't, you know, I've noticed that. Or, yeah, I'm glad you finally apologizing. You know what he said to me? He said, John, this stuff is just so difficult. And it's really hard. And I could understand why you would be frustrated. It was in that moment he didn't belittle me. He offered forgiveness without really saying it, but he restored me. And there's a picture of that what it, in, that, in that interaction of what it looks like for us to aim for restoration, which is counter our culture, and so is to offer comfort. The next thing says, comfort one another. This church had been torn apart by divisions and false teachers, and Paul says your responsibility your countercultural impulse based on the gospel is not to leave people by themselves, but rather to move towards them and comfort them. In fact, the way that Paul starts out this whole book is by talking about comfort. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 6, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Next slide who comforts us in all, all our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, through, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. So Paul uses that word comfort over and over, and here's what he's trying to get to. Um, if God has comforted you, the reason God has comforted you is not solely so that you could be comforted, but so that you could pass that comfort on to someone else as well. And it is through that you passing comfort forward, that someone else is comforted by God. And that comfort is not just for them either, it's for them to pass it forward as well. See, we're called to have this impulse of wanting to comfort one another and to agree, to agree with each other. That's what the next slide says, agree with one another. Now, if we just started talking it wouldn't take very long to see that we disagreed on a lot of things. In fact, I heard at, at the men's breakfast that there were three guys sitting next to each other, and one represented the University of Tennessee, one represented the University of Florida, and one was a Georgia Bulldogs fan. They, they did not agree on the best football team. But that's not what this is talking about. We are not going to agree on sports sometimes even politics. We are going to disagree on big things, but there's something bigger than all of that. The main thing, the good news of Jesus, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, that, that sinners could be forgiven, that you and I are sinners who desperately need God's help and God steps in and helps us. In fact, if that is true for you and me, then we have more in common than we can ever realize arguably the most true things about us we have in common. Even though our skin color isn't the same, even though our pocketbooks aren't the same size, you and I are sinners who have been saved by the grace of Jesus. 
and no one can take that away from you and me. So we agree with each other, we move towards each other, and we live in peace. Now, when Paul uses the word peace, he doesn't mean peace and quiet, although I'm sure many of you wish that he was talking about living in peace and quiet. No, for peace, he's talking about cultivating a peace, cultivating a harmony, cultivating God's beauty and restoration. And there's an activeness to it. It's not a feeling that we passively receive. Rather, it's something that we actively do. Matt Smethurt said, peace doesn't come from knowing what God is doing. It comes from knowing that God is the one doing it. And as you know God, he makes you into a person who is increasing in peace. And as you have increasing peace, you begin to make peace and live at peace even when other people aren't peaceful. Counterculture. The gospel generates a counterculture impulse in us. It calls us to action, to to make peace, to agree with one another, to comfort each other, to restore each other, and to rejoice. To rejoice that God loves us, and we've seen that so clearly through Jesus. R. Kent Hughes says that the Christian life in the existence of unity, which is our counterculture, the existence of unity within the church does not come through passivity. We must work at every aspect all the time. Restoration is work. Comfort is work. Agreement is work. Peace is work. And even rejoicing requires thought and effort. Paul called for continuous, specific effort for the church, and everything depended on their response. But he was optimistic. And that is why he commanded that they rejoice and keep on rejoicing. These are things we're called to, and here's why. Paul says in verse 11, and the God of love and peace will be with you. That our church culture, that our relational culture would be known as God in his love and in his peace being with us as we restore, comfort, agree, and live in peace with one another. See, there's some sort of power that we have as the people of God. We often wait and say, God, bring this experience to me. And what Paul is saying is that if we do these things, we will experience the peace and love of God. As you comfort one another, you will experience the peace of God. As you agree with one another and aim for restoration with one another and live in peace, you will experience the love of God. And it's not something you earn. It's something you do based on the gospel. So often we are focused in our culture on manifesting a new reality for me. If I think about something enough, then our culture says, well, you can create that. But what God is saying here is, actually, if we do these things, we can create a different kind of culture that the world has never seen. A culture defined by unity and by love. That's how Paul ends his text here. He reminds us, of the deepest reality of what's true for you and me. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Lastly, Paul is reminding us that we are secured to a relational God. Our God is a three-in-one God. You see it there. 
Jesus the Son, God the Father, Holy Spirit. One, two, three. All equally God, all in harmony with each other. Our God is a three in one. In fact, many people go to this passage to define who God is. The the Nicene Creed was a creed that came about from wrestling with the three persons within our one God. And in that relationship that God has with himself, there is joy, there is love, there is bondedness, there is sacrifice, and there is mutual submission. In this relationship that God has with himself, there has never been any criticism. There has never been any side talk, one person talking about the other behind their back. No one is jaded about another member of the Trinity. No one makes power plays to gain more power because God is full of joy and love and sacrifice. This is who God is. If you know Jesus Christ, this is the God you are meant to experience. So many people, as Michael Reeves says, sees God as a loveless dictator in the sky, as if he's a self-obsessed, merciless bully. And the way they describe God sounds more like Satan than it does like this. But this is who God is. This is who he is, how he defines himself. And this is the God you're meant to experience. Paul says the blessing that you're meant to experience, the grace and love and fellowship of God as you're in relationship with him together. See, the reason we know we're meant to experience it is because normally what happens when you talk about the Trinity, who do you say first? You say the Father, right? When you baptize someone, it's in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. But here, Paul says, the Lord Jesus Christ first. Why is that? Because in salvation, Jesus is the one we experience first. And as we grow in our relationship to Jesus and understanding his forgiveness, we understand that we are reconciled to God the Father. And as we understand that, we become full of the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying this in a way to let us know that it's not just about knowing who God is as the Trinity, it's about experiencing God together in his grace and his love and fellowship together. See, in the grace of God, Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that though we were spiritually poor, we might become rich. The grace of God means Jesus did not keep score. The love of God means that though we were sinners, God the Father sent God the Son to die for you and I ungodly people because God the Father didn't keep score. He moved towards us in love. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit means that you and I are eternally connected, welded, glued to this God together. And there is nothing If our faith is in Christ, there is nothing we can do to break that bond. I'm astounded that the last word of this letter, this last phrase is be with you all. Because he's talking to the Corinthian church. The the one that have utterly failed Paul. The worst church in the New Testament. 
But if Paul's saying that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit can be with the Corinthian church, then it can certainly be with us. And that's the promise for us. That together we are meant to experience God's grace and God's love and God's fellowship. And as we internalize that, it redefines our relationships so that we can love each other with a oneness. We can see each other as more important than ourselves. We can take the love that God has given us and we can give it to someone else. We can take the comfort that God has given us in the gospel and we give it to someone else. We can see that we're not meant to keep score because God himself didn't keep score in the gospel. Thank you for joining with us as we rooted deep in God's word. If you found this sermon encouraging, share it with a friend. You can learn more about New City by going to newcityhh.com or checking us out on social media by searching New City HH. We'll see you next week.